Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, another busy podcast. And it's the middle of May. What is going on here? I'll be joined by my friend Paul Burmeister from NBC Sports in a moment. And also, this is going to be a different kind of podcast. We're going to have two conversations in this podcast instead of the customary one. I'll be joined by Los Angeles Chargers General Manager Tom Telesco. And then by the two people who are at the fore of making the NFL's annual schedule, Howard Katz, and Mike North of the NFL scheduling department and the broadcast department. And you'll hear some of the inside stuff that happened uh, on the making of the schedule. Paul, happy day to you. How are things with you? And how are things in the United States Football League? USFL is great, uh, Peter. It's hard to believe that uh, this past weekend marked the halfway point of the season. I had a really fun booth. My normal partner, Mike Robinson, the former Seahawk and Niner, along with current Saints All-Pro D lineman Cam Jordan. Uh, he, he really made it. It's always fun. Made it even more fun. And I have Cam for just a two-man booth this coming Saturday on NBC. So uh, the games are great, uh, but I'm, I'm really excited about what we're doing in the booth, too. Oh, that's good. Good. So we're going to get into four or five topics before we get into the conversations We'll wade into Jair Alexander rewriting the kind of the cornerback contract rules with a big deal that I think is really significant for the Packers and might be for the rest of the league. Uh, I wanted to talk to Paul, who, as most of you know, is a former Big Ten quarterback, about what the New England Patriots are going to be doing this year with Mac Jones in the absence of Josh McDaniels. Uh, we'll talk about the quarterback coaching plans for the Patriots. And we're going to get into a little bit of the uh, kind of previewing the Chargers this year. I don't think any team has addressed more problems in the offseason than the Los Angeles Chargers have. We'll get into that with Tom Telesco. I'm going to tell you about a strange but true uh, part of the NFL schedule which is the 9.30 a.m. Eastern time windows being strengthened by the NFL and what exactly it means going forward. And I've had a lot of reaction to my column this week in which I quote Jerry Jones as saying he will never, ever sell the team. 
and the franchise is worth more than $10 billion. So uh, we've got, we got a lot of fodder for this week's podcast. But Paul, let's start up north in Green Bay. And the only reason why I, my interest was really piqued in the Jair Alexander contract with the Packers is that, first of all, he's one of the best young cornerbacks in football. At the age of 26, the Packers have given him basically a four-year, $84 million deal, which, you know, essentially, in my opinion, kind of rewrites the rules on teams signing really good young quarterbacks. I understand Jalen Ramsey was involved, but in some ways, he was a unicorn because he went to uh, the Rams and the Rams knew that, look, we, we've got to sign this guy to a big deal anyway. But before that, you know, or, or since then, there really hasn't been anybody who's done the same thing. The reason I think it's a little different, Paul, is that, you know, the Green Bay Packers didn't sign Devontae Adams and chose to sign um, Jair Alexander. So I, I, I'm not positive about the long-term impact of this, but I think short-term, uh, Green Bay is sort of saying, hey, we think that Jair Alexander has four very good top seasons left. And not only did uh, Devontae Adams probably want out, but we're really not sure if he's got four or five top years left. Give me a read of the situation. I think those are two very good things to bring up. First of all, the age with the two players and also the fact that we can't forget that Devontae Adams at that point of his career probably wanted to be closer to home and he got that, that, that wish came true. So those two things are very important. I look at this, Peter, and for as much as we think of the Packers quarterback first, and we've been doing this for the last 30 years with Brett Favre and now Aaron Rodgers, but we see Aaron Rodgers playing at an MVP level and he's the first and second thing we think of when we consider the Green Bay Packers. The schedule just came out. Green Bay's featured because not the defense, but because of Aaron Rodgers. But those building the Packers, uh, those who are thinking, okay, how do we make this a Super Bowl team? They're doing so with defense in mind. And that's what this move says to me. Look at what they did in the draft this year. They had two first-round picks, both on defense. Last year, a corner in the first round. They're investing in Alexander this way. This is a team that is happy it has Aaron, but it's building through the defense. And this is just one more giant investment that lets us know that those making this come true, they're thinking D first. I think you're right. I think that Brian Gutekunst, the general manager of the Packers, has basically shown himself to be a long-term thinker. And I think that in getting uh, quality draft picks for Devontae Adams, I think he believes now that both with his first round picks kind of giving a backbone to the defense and Christian Watson in the second round, those are long haul type players for him. So I think for all of us who've really questioned that he's not done enough at the receiver position, look, time will tell. Christian Watson is that guy, and there's going to be pressure on him from day one. 
So we'll see what happens. But I'm interested in the Green Bay Packers going forward. The Jair Alexander contract only uh, puts an exclamation point on that. Paul, uh, this week we have learned that what we thought was going to happen and what we thought we knew uh, is that Joe Judge, the former special teams coordinator of the Patriots, the former head coach of the New York Giants, is now going to be the quarterback coach, uh, as well as other things, I'm sure, because Bill Belichick on the New England staff, you know, believes in multiplicity of duties for his coaches. But Joe Judge is going to coach Mac Jones. Now, I'm not saying that that is absolutely, totally wrong. What I am saying is that this is a crucial year for the development of the heir to Tom Brady. And he had an excellent first year under Josh McDaniels. And now I just question what in the world, uh, or I question how in the world is this the right decision for your young quarterback? And the reason I wanted to bring this up is I think you would have a really kind of unique, uh, you know, intelligent view on the importance of the guy who touches the quarterback every day for hours every day. Peter, I'm going to look at this from a couple of different ways. So follow me here. The long view starts with, I asked the question of an outside linebacker for Tampa Bay at a USFL last week in a production meeting. His defensive coordinator is Pepper Johnson, longtime linebacker, for, for the Giants, played for Bill Belichick, coach for Bill Belichick. I said, hey, that's an incredible resume of the guy teaching you. Give me one piece of knowledge you've learned from him. And he said, Pepper tells me as an outside linebacker, you got to know what the inside linebackers are doing. Then you got to know what the defensive tackles are doing. Know what the safeties are doing. Know what a corner is doing. Know the goal of every single call that I make from the sideline. So there's this view of everybody who has spent time around Bill Belichick that you need to diversify. You need to know everything going on around you. So him appointing Joe Judge, if that is indeed the case, to work with the quarterbacks makes sense. He wants everybody in his building to know everything going on around him besides just his one area of expertise. So in that way, it makes sense. The way that I would question it is there aren't that many people in the NFL coaching quarterbacks who really know how to coach technique. If a ball is sailing on a far comeback, what happened with the balance? What happened with the footwork? What's your release doing? What are your hips doing? And I, as you mentioned, a quarterback in his second year, maybe he needs a lot of that. He probably does. In the abstract, they all do. So where Joe Judge might be able to give unique perspective to the offense in a Bill Belichick way, and also reading the defense because he knows everything happening on the field, does he know how to correct and enhance what Mac is doing throwing the football? I would say probably not in the way that most NFL quarterback coaches may not have that kind of expertise. So in a way, a win. Uh, in another way, if the second-year quarterback needs help on technique, is he going to get it from a guy who made a life coaching special teams? That is so interesting when I hear you talk about technique things. Because obviously, Josh McDaniels was big into technique. And it reminds me of, you know, a pitcher sometimes. If the pitcher, 
you know, you hear major league pitchers sometimes, you know, they get two or three bad starts in a row and they went and corrected their mechanics. Maybe they moved to a different part of the pitching rubber. Maybe they felt that they were tipping pitches, you know, whatever. But the reason why I think you make such a good point on that one is that I don't know that Joe Judge knows the mechanics of the position. He certainly isn't going to know him as well as Josh McDaniels knows him. Now, everybody who has been around Joe Judge says he's very anal in terms of his preparation and all that. He will understand everything that has to be done with the quarterback. But Paul, I think that if, as you say, if Mac Judge's balls start sailing or he doesn't do things exactly mechanically the way he is, he's maybe throwing behind the receivers or something like that and something needs to be fixed, the really good question is, can Joe Judge fix that? That'll be a huge question with the Patriots going forward this year. I want to talk a little bit about the Los Angeles Chargers because in my opinion, when I look at the Chargers this year, I don't think there's a team in the NFL that addressed more positions going back to February 1 than the Los Angeles Chargers did. So let's just, let's go through what they've done this offseason to try to make progress in a vastly improving uh, AFC West. First of all, they re-signed Mike Williams and they re-signed Mike Williams, the wide receiver, before the salaries started going crazy at wide receiver. So they got him basically at $20, $20 for a, a, a franchise receiver or very, very close to one. That's one. Number two, they drafted Zion Johnson and are going to probably have him be their opening day right guard. And, and I think he is the guy in the interior part of their line. That's a place that they really wanted to strengthen on that side of the, that side of the line. Um, they signed a little bit of an under-the-radar tight end in free agency, Gerald Everett. Um, that position after the departure, um, you know, or after several departures in the last few years at tight end, I think was a position they really wanted to address. And then on defense, obviously, uh, they go and get Sebastian Joseph Day uh, to sort of repair a run defense uh, that that really didn't do well late last season. Also, Austin Johnson from the New York Giants. But then, you know, the two big moves, they trade for Khalil Mack, who they are pretty sure has one or two really big years left as a pass rusher. He, they think that he can help be an alternative to Joey Bosa on the other side of the field. And then, obviously, um, you know, as well as Khalil Mack, they signed J.C. Jackson, the best cornerback in free agency this year. Paul, that is putting a lot of Band-Aids on places that need it. And to me, I look at the Chargers as a team that has really done a lot of good this offseason. How do you view it? 
I think they are they are coming at this from position A because they have one of the best side quarterbacks in the league. They have a tremendous young left tackle. So everything they do, I don't want to, I don't know if it's I'm giving them an automatic pass to have it make sense, but they start from this position that so many teams would like to be in. Double digit wins. Okay, they've done it. Tremendous quarterback and a left tackle. They have those things. So they are moving so much further in the right direction than so many of these other teams that are also applying band-aids and, and investing in this way. I think they're doing it from a position of strength as much as anybody. And as long as the schedule came out, you know, this recently, I want to work that in. We find out right away. They play the Raiders and the Chiefs right away. So they're in this division that, yes, the teams are awesome. But you think about the quarterbacks, Wilson, Mahomes, Herbert, and Carr, they're going to get tested right away with that defense, and we're going to find out because it's, it's really championship or bust with the Chargers. This isn't about winning 12 games. It's about how far can you go in January, yeah. maybe February. Uh, I, I can't wait to get that peak with those first couple AFC West games. You know, the really interesting thing to me when I looked at the Chargers schedule is it isn't only sort of the way it starts because as you said right away, you know, this is going to be a really, really tough. And look, you've got six really tough division games, obviously. But I think what is so interesting about the schedule is that, you know, Raiders in Kansas City right off the bat. And not only that, Paul, but Raiders and then fly halfway across the country for a short week Thursday game in what is always a really emotional game because they've played every game, uh, you know, between Mahomes and the, and the Chargers basically has been really close and right down to the end. But then the schedule maker gives them a little bit of a break. The two easiest games on their schedule, Jacksonville and Houston, come in weeks three and four. So that to me is a little bit of, of a help for the Chargers because look, as much as everybody can say, oh my God, if they start 0-2, their goose is cooked. Well, they could be 2-2 very easily if their season starts disastrously, okay? But the other part of the schedule that I noticed is kind of a killer last month, okay? Think of this for your last four games of the season. Tennessee at home, at Indianapolis, when you've got to figure that both Indianapolis and the Chargers are going to need that game, you know, for their playoff hopes. And then the Rams in LA on New Year's Day and at Denver. So this is, this is really going to be a tough thing down the stretch for the Chargers. And you know what, Paul? They better have a little bit of breathing room when it comes time to the end of the year. Yeah, the Chargers, to me, are one of the most fun teams because uh, how much I like watching Justin Herbert, how they've invested in that defense and what they do in that division. And I didn't get as far into the schedule as you did, Peter. I looked at the front end of it, uh, but you bringing up what they have on the back end, uh, it's, uh, I mean, a number of reasons that this is really a, a team of interest for all of us this coming year. Paul, there's something about the schedule this year that I don't think, 
and look, I'm a, I'm a schedule nerd, but I picked up on this and really I've, nobody else has. And I talked to somebody in the league and they said I was right on, but there are four 9.30 a.m. Eastern time games this year, okay? And whereas many times in the past, we might see these 9.30 a.m. games and it was like every year Jacksonville is playing one. And, you know, they seem to be usually with, you know, bottom of the league teams or teams that you really don't think are going to be great that year. But let's just look at the three kind of home teams that we're going to see, or I shouldn't say home teams, but you know, the three teams, three NFC teams uh, that are being given these 930 games this year. And I'll tell you what it says about what the NFL is doing. One of the teams obviously is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They will play the first game ever in Germany uh, in November, uh, and they will play the Seattle Seahawks. So obviously, Tom Brady will be playing a game in the 9.30 a.m. window. Second, Aaron Rodgers, October, London. He will be playing a 9.30 game against the New York Giants. And, you know, for everybody who kind of looks at these games as, you know, uh, in some ways they're tentpole games for the NFL because they want to establish a real beachhead in, in Europe. They want to have big games in Europe. And then the last game, you know, I think both New Orleans and Minnesota could be playing in January and maybe deep into January. So to me, the NFL this year, as well as, you know, having a schedule like for Amazon on Thursday nights that everybody says, oh my God, great schedule, all that. But they have made, they have put four uh, games at 930 uh, that, are, that are good games. Well, three of the four games, the Jacksonville game, who knows? But three of the four games are high-quality games with top quarterbacks and or top teams. So to me, what you're seeing here, Paul, is you're seeing the NFL say, okay, you know, we're going to put games streaming this year you know, on, on Amazon on Thursday night. That's a new and kind of revolutionary thing, which I don't think, by the way, is all that revolutionary because... People are saying the same things about streaming that they said about the NFL going to cable TV, whatever, 25 years ago. And and look, we get into this some other time, but the way I look at streaming and why I don't think it's a big risk at all is that I look at my two kids. They're in their 30s. One lives in, in the San Francisco area, one in Seattle. They haven't had cable TV in several years. They both do all streaming for their television. And, you know, whether it's YouTube TV or whatever, this is the way a lot of young people, and not necessarily young people, are, are looking at games. But the 9.30 a.m. window, I think, is another way for the NFL to say, listen, we are not, 
This is not, we're not just putting weak sister games on, you know, on that thing. We are trying to make people, instead of having maybe a a 10-hour day watching games on TV, we want it to be 13 hours now or whatever it's going to be. I don't know. Give me your view. Peter, it made me think of the the longest, what I still remember is the longest 30 minutes of my life every Sunday in the fall when I was a a kid, 11.30 a.m., waiting for those games to come on, watching like face the nation, meet the press when I was eight, nine, 10 years old. (laughs) Felt like kickoff was never going to arrive. I would have given my entire allowance for football to have started a half hour earlier or an hour earlier, two hours earlier. And now, you know, we're moving toward that a little bit. And then as an adult, when I lived on the West Coast for a while, it was a little weird right away on Saturday and Sunday to have football on in the morning. But once you get used to it, you wonder why doesn't this happen all the time everywhere? So I I think it's genius. I think there's only going to be more, whatever the details are. But for those of us who love football, to have it on on Sunday from noon till you go to bed, okay, we do that anyway. Why not have it on in the morning? I, I think the majority of us that consider us uh, consider ourselves huge fans would welcome it and love it. Well, uh, I, before we get to our conversations, I wanted to leave you with one last thing. This is not a one-year venture. This is not a one-year thing that the NFL is doing because next year, the home team for the game in Germany is going to be either Kansas City or New England. So, because the way that the NFL has decided to do this is that they they are giving NFL franchises the right to do business deals, marketing deals, sponsorship deals in certain international countries. And there are four teams that have the option to do it in Germany. Uh, Tampa Bay is one. Kansas City is one. New England is one. And the fourth is the Carolina Panthers. The NFL is going to do these international games alternating AFC-NFC as, as home teams with the exception of Jacksonville. They have a separate deal. But this year, because... NFC teams have nine home games. It's easy to take the Green Bay Packers in one of their with one of their nine home games to put that overseas. And so at the same time, they can say to their fans, you're going to have eight home games this year, just like always. You're going to have eight home games next year. They're not going to send teams without that extra home game uh, to play a game, inter- you know, in an international country. And what this means is that because the AFC will have nine uh, home games next year for all of its teams, next year in Germany, it'll either be Kansas City or New England hosting the game over there. So the NFL with the 17-game schedule, part of it was... Hey, look, now no one's going to argue. You got to stop arguing about, you know, we don't want to go overseas. The Packers never wanted to go overseas. But now with the extra home game, once every eight years, the Packers, just like this is an NFL rule now, once every eight years, you're obligated at least once every eight years to play a game uh, outside the United States. So anyway, that's a little bit, probably way too much 
inside baseball, but I wanted to get that out. So I want to go to my conversation with Tom Telesco, the general manager of the Chargers. We'll talk to him about some of the moves that, that we, Paul and I just discussed. And then after Tom Telesco, we will get into my conversation on Friday, this past Friday, with Howard Katz and Mike North of the NFL scheduling and broadcast team. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So, I think one of the most interesting things, Tom Telesco, that, that I have seen happen in the NFL this year and and really in the last year or so is a boldness on the part of a lot of general managers maybe to make some moves that in the past you really couldn't see coming and you know the couple in this particular case for your year uh i think obviously trading for khalil mack it was a very very big deal and I thought a really good under the radar um, signing for you in free agency was Sebastian Joseph Day, uh, who you get to play defensive tackle from the Rams. And I just know from knowing Aaron Donald a little bit how valuable he thought Sebastian Joseph Day was. We'll get to all of your uh, signings and, and how much I think you're improved. Adding JC Jackson, obviously, to play corner keeping Mike Williams as a really valuable receiver. But I want to start with those two additions on defense. And let's start a little bit with Khalil Mack and tell me how difficult it was to pull off that trade, knowing that, okay, you're not positive really what he has left. He's had some injury history in Chicago uh, and, and probably hasn't been quite as impactful as they thought he would be. But you also have a head coach who's got a history with him. Take right. me into Khalil Mack. Yeah, you know, with, with these moves, it's a lot of it's uh, right place, right time, and when it's appropriate. And it's funny, the, the two players you mentioned off the bat, Khalil Mack and, and Sebastian Joseph Day, um, the fact that they have a history with their head coach, it helps. There's no doubt that helps. When you're signing a free agent, when you're trading for somebody, especially when you trade for Khalil, giving up, you know, a second round draft pick, which hopefully is a core player down the road. And we also gave up a sixth. Um, 
you really got to make sure that player fits. And we can only watch so much on tape. Um, like you said, Khalil had the, had the foot injury last year. Um, but watching him play, we still feel like he has enough left. Like he still, he still affects the quarterback, still plays the run extremely well. Um, but also we knew, you know, since Brandon coached him, Brandon knows him inside and out, knows him as a person, knows how much he'll fit here. So that really helped in that decision. And, you know, they have a new head coach. They have a new general manager. You know, their roster is changing. Um, probably not unlike when I first arrived here. Um, so when you, when you put that into the equation and the fact that we have a history, or not we, but Brandon had a history with Khalil, is something you look at, um, not something we've done a lot with. You know, we haven't made a lot of trades like that in the past, but um, right place, right time, um, certainly appropriate to look at and to really give somebody opposite Joey that people have to account for. And it's going to help both players, um, not only on the field, but then also in the locker room with Khalil. So to have someone like that that walks in the door, um, you know, that, that people have to pay attention to, it's going to help the defense. I remember, I remember, um, and he, he was with him with the Bears in 18 right. when he first got there, right? Correct. Yeah. Him for yeah. The, right after that trade happened, I'll never forget talking to some of the people in Chicago about him. And it was even though he's not necessarily a holler guy and, a, you know, a, a, a real a real talkative guy necessarily. As soon as he walked onto that team, he was a focal point for that defense. And that was a good defense already. Very good. Yeah. So I think knowing how much of a factor he was as a leader type guy had to be a good part of that for you guys with this, yeah. and, uh, with and this acquisition. High level production, um, both with the Raiders and with the Bears, you know, up until last year. And last year he was still producing at a pretty high level until they got hurt. So, but yeah, you take that into account with, um, you know, his veteran experience. I mean, we, our team is on the younger side. We try and sprinkle in some veterans and we've done that this year. We want to have a nice, nice balance of, of, you know, really young players, some, some uh, younger veterans and some older veterans. And that's, what we think we've kind of mixed in this year. I think one other, the reason why this kind of made everybody sit up and take notice is that, I think most people still believe that even at 31, Khalil Mack still can be a real impact player. Tell me a little bit about how you think he and uh, he and Joey Bosa will be playing, you know, on the same defense now and how they should anyway, allow your defense to have less pressure on, uh, you know, on Bosa because they got to pay attention to both. Yeah, and, and the more pass rush we have, you know, the easier it is on the coverage behind that. So it, they have to marry that up, the pass rush and the coverage. This is a throwing league. Um, you got to have both of those. You know, hopefully we have the lead late in games where we're rushing the passer a lot. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Khalil just gives us, a, you know, a real pass rusher on that side. And, and, and as you scout the player as far as how he's going to fit in our defense, it makes it a lot simpler when we're watching in Chicago, watching a lot of the same stuff we do here. Uh, so that's very helpful. So you're not projecting at all, but you hate to project with a, either a UFA or someone you're, or veteran you're trading for. We, like we know exactly what we're getting, how he's going to fit. Even a lot of the verbiage is the same. Um, so whether it's a, you know, three down, four down or five down look, you know, it's going to free up other people. It's going to free up our interior defensive line to get 
you have to get to. It just can't come from the perimeter. Um, but uh, not to mention, you know, a point of emphasis this offseason was this offseason was to get better against the run. Khalil brings out as well. I mean, he, he, he can really set the edge on the outside. He's powerful, strong hands, um, really, really instinctive. So, you know, he's got a full skill set to fit that position. And like I said, there's, like I said, there's no projection there. We've seen him do it in that type of defense. The same thing he'll do here. I thought it was interesting you mentioned that because I remember going back to the your last game of the season when you had that crushing loss to the to the Raiders. The thing I remember about that game is that you know, when you look back on it, I mean, Derek Carr had some nice throws in that game. He had some big plays, but it was their running game that I thought really kind of wounded you guys. And I don't remember off the top of my head, but I, I'm guessing they ran for 180 or something like that. And it is oftentimes kind of the little things that are going to help you be better and improve. And, and that's one of the reasons why I brought up Sebastian Joseph Day, because I just think he's the kind of uh, space eater in the middle of the field where he's not maybe your sort of classic, uh, you, you know, he doesn't, he, he's not necessarily a three technique guy and he's not necessarily a 340 pound nose. He's a versatile defensive tackle who plays very, very well against the run. Tell me how you isolated on him and how you were able to get him to come over. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that that Raiders game because whenever you don't make the playoffs and you're that close to it, you tend to really focus on that last game of the year, what went wrong. Um, and like you said, in that game, you know, we did very well against the run the first half, but the second half in overtime, we struggled to stop the run. There were some plays in overtime. If we just get a stop, um, you know, the game ends in a tie and we're still in the playoffs. But I wanted to make sure, like, as we went into this offseason, um, you know, I, I know we see that last game, but, like, you know, mid-December, we're playing Kansas City um, for the division lead with four games left and a potential bye. And we, and we lost that game to Kansas City in overtime. You probably remember that. Then we yeah. lost two out of our next three to finish the year. So we didn't finish well. So I knew, you know, for this off season, like we got to have a balanced look of our, of our football team. We don't want to go one way or, you know, too much on one side of the ball, but I also knew defensively because I saw this um, early on when I was with the Colts, we initially Jim Moore was the head coach. Vic Fangio was the defensive coordinator. Um, you know, actually the, the defense that Vic ran with the Colts is, pretty similar to what we run now. I mean, the game's evolved, so it's changed, obviously, but a lot of the concepts are the same. When it changed to Tony Dungy's defense, the skill set required for those defensive players changed dramatically. So this year, or two years ago, we go from Gus Bradley's defense to Brandon Staley's defense, a lot of the same transition. It, it changes the skill set of the players that you need. I probably, uh, probably last offseason, probably overestimated some players I thought would be a good fit that weren't the perfect fit. So as winning this offseason, Luckily, in free agency, there were some players that we thought could help us on defense that really fit the scheme well. And obviously, again, with, with Joseph Day, he not only fits it well, but he was playing in the very same scheme with the Rams, and our head coach knows him very well. Um, so it was just a good fit for us. And as a player, we still think he's got a lot of upside, which you don't always get when you sign an unrestricted free agent. They are kind of what they are a lot of times, four years, five years into the league. We still think he's got a lot left there uh, to get even better. And like you said, he's not your, he's not your six foot four, 315 pound nose tackle. Um, 
but he's got long arms, great leverage, great feel and instincts inside, um, very strong and plays hard um, and has a lot of energy to him. So to sign him, to sign Austin Johnson from the Giants, Austin had a great year last year, um, yeah. a big defensive lineman. So we had to get bigger um, up front um, guys that kind of more fit the scheme of what we're going to play and to sign those two guys, that was pretty critical to our, our, our plan this offseason. Um, you know, the, the sign JC Jackson, that was important. Want to add another corner can never have enough of them. And especially that, you know, with his talent level and his ability to turn the ball over is so important. Um, but we had to get better on the defensive line. Now I shouldn't say better, but we had to change the skill set of what we're looking for in the front. Cause this is different how we're playing now, as opposed to, um, when Gus was here, they both schemes work, um, but they require a different, uh, set of, um, of skill set for different players. So, um, but they had those two defensive, defensive linemen inside, drafted Tito uh, Albonia from UCLA. That name's not easy to pronounce. Um, again, more fits the skill set of we're going to look for inside. Tell me a little bit about uh, J.C. Jackson, why he became a big focus of yours, uh, and obviously at a, at a huge salary, but why did he become uh, the, the corner who you really wanted? Yeah, you know, free agency is hard. Um, you know, we, we wanted to add a corner in free agency if we could. Um, if we didn't add one in free agency, we're hoping to maybe draft one, but you never know in the draft. Um, with JC, in our opinion, he was the best available in free agency, and just in our opinion. Um, does that mean you always go, go, you know, find the highest paid player you can find and sign him? Not always necessarily, but in this case, we thought it made sense. Um, we like how he plays the game. Um, we as far as his man coverage ability and his really his ability to turn the ball over on a consistent level year after year um, is something we thought would be great for our defense. So um, it was an investment we made in that position, uh, fully knowing it was going to be a big contract. We understood that. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we had a smaller group of corners we, we liked in free agency. Um, it wasn't like there were six, seven, eight different players that we could go to. It was a much smaller list, you know, maybe maybe three to four that we felt could come in and really help us. And, and we thought he was the best of the four and we thought it was worth the investment. Can you just tell me a little bit about your research into him? And I'm specifically interested in his past relationship with Derwin James and how much that might have been some factor in, in what you did, because for those who don't know, uh, it, Derwin James and J.C. Jackson a uh, hundred years ago were mm -hmm. on the same seven on seven team, I believe, right? Just tell me, tell me about that and tell me what, if anything, that had to do with it. I'm sure you discussed it with, with Derwin James a bit. Yeah, you know, uh, in free agency, connections are good. Uh, they really are. It, it's, it's, um, in the college draft, we have access to so much information on players that's current. Um, but when you're an unrestricted free agency, that those players have been with a different team for three years, four years, five years and above, you don't know exactly um, everything about them anymore. A lot of things have changed. Um, but we do like some, some familiarity. Obviously, there was a lot there with Derwin. You'd have to ask JC as far as how much it meant to him to be a part of that. I think it, I think it was a big part of it. Um, the fact that, that that he wanted to play here, be a part of this, and be a part of it with Derwin, Derwin is is big. It's a big part of you know how we ended up here. Um, but I like those connections. Like we had the connection with Khalil, had the connection with Sebastian Joseph Day, 
Um, we had some connections with, with Corey Lindsley, so we know the type of person that we're going to get. So um, there's so many misses in free agency. You try and mitigate some of that risk by knowing exactly what you're going to get. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the relationship goes back pretty far. I didn't know this till after the fact, but um, JC is also working with Edger and James a little bit, and I go really far back with Edger. And so, um, yeah, that's uh, it, it's a big part of it as far as you know knowing what you're going to get. And I, I think having Derwin here was a big part of JC's decision. Um, did you have <clears throat> what you felt was a lot of competition for JC Jackson? Because I know that after he signed. He said the Chargers were, that's the team I wanted to go to all along. Was it what you might call an easy negotiation? Because obviously, at least afterwards, you knew how much he wanted to be a Charger. Yeah, there's, there's no easy negotiations. That, that's, uh, there's no way that's going to happen. Um, yeah, you don't know who you're uh, competing with. You just don't know. Um, obviously, I think for a lot of teams, he was probably, um, you know, a target, you know, he's one of the best corners that was available and, and still relatively young. So um, yeah, there was competition for him. You, you knew that was going to happen, which is why the contract is what it is. Um, but uh, in the end, you do like, you know, as long as the money is equal, you know, you, you want players to choose where they think they have the best chance to win and where they really want to live and who they want to play with and play for. So uh, we thought we had a lot, a lot to offer um, with Brandon Staley, with Derwin, um, with having Justin Herbert here. And, and you know, we, at that point, um, we had traded for Khalil Mack. So hopefully he saw what we we're putting together here and he wanted to be a part of that. And I think that was part of his decision. I mean, obviously money is very, very important. It's a business. We get that. But there are other aspects of, you know, who do you want to play for? Who do you want to play with? And I think he wanted to be here. So I'm curious from a general manager's standpoint, I think I'm, I've got the dates correct. You signed Mike Williams, the wide re, your wide receiver, on March 8th. So you sign him a week or so before free agency. And you sign him to a what has been reported anyway is a three-year, $60 million contract, which, you know, when you think about it, three months ago, $20 million a year was the going rate for the best wide receivers in the game. There was only one guy who was appreciably above that, and that was... Uh, DeAndre Hopkins, but on a very short-term deal. So, you know, we've seen what has happened over the last two months. You know, it's absolutely exploded. So I wonder, in the wake of all that, are you kind of glad you were aggressive with Mike Williams and didn't wait until a week or two or three into free agency? Yeah, I mean, Mike was a focal point this offseason. We all knew we wanted to get him back here. Um, we thought we had the financial capabilities to do that. And just like with J.C. Jackson, I think Mike really wanted to be here. So it takes two to, to, to do that dance, and he wanted to be here. So, um, But we were aggressive with it. And look, the nature of free agent contracts every year, they just stair-step in value. That's just the way that it is. And um, most times when you sign a UFA, whether it's from another team or one of your own players, you know, the numbers may look big and it may look like, boy, do you think we overspent? But you know what? In a year, certainly in two years, those numbers don't look as bad anymore. So you just got to make sure you put it on the right player. And, and with Mike, you know, we knew Mike, we drafted Mike and, and we know how big he is for our offense. Um, have him out there with Keenan, have him out there with Austin Eckler. Um, he's just a critical part of the offense. And we're trying to give Joe Lombardi, offensive coordinator, and, and Justin Herbert 
as many weapons and, and the biggest menu possible to go to. And uh, Mike's a big part of that. And uh, so we're you know very happy to get that done. I know he was happy about it. But uh, yeah, these now did I think the numbers would get to where they were this year? Not really. Um, I didn't think they'd go to that extent, but that happens. You're gonna, you're gonna see spikes at different positions over time. Um, this one spike now, we'll see if this is a, you really can't call it a trend. It's only been a year for it to spike this much, but we'll see, but I know we're happy to have Mike uh, back here for a number of years. I thought Mike Williams was the kind of difference maker that, um, and look, you know, Keenan Allen is great too, but he's really a different receiver than Mike Williams. Mike Williams is the guy who, it reminds me of sort of your classic big receiver deep threat. And, you know, obviously he's averaged over 15 yards, uh, a catch for you guys uh, over the last couple of years, obviously been Justin, one of Justin Herbert's favorite targets. But I think one of the things that people don't see is Mike Williams off the, off the field, Not, or, or I should say, um, outside of the game, because Brandon Staley told me a story at the combine about how at the end of that devastating loss against the Raiders in Las Vegas, he went into the locker room afterwards and he just looked over it at Mike Williams, who is just absolutely, totally unequivocally spent. You know, he had given everything that he had. And he said, as devastated as I was, he said, I was just thinking that day, we got to keep this guy. We got, we have to find some way to, to, to keep him. Can you discuss a little bit about the value of a guy who plays the way Mike Williams plays to a team that's trying to get to a championship level? There's no doubt. And, and it's, it's uh, when you have a number of players like that, it all starts to rub off. I remember it's a couple of years ago, we, we lost to Kansas city uh, in Mexico city, tough game. And, when I saw Austin Eckler in the locker room um, that he gave as much as he gave and how he felt after that loss, I looked at him and I and didn't talk to him, but I never forgot that. I'm like, these are the type of players that we have to have here for the long term. Um, and we have more than, than just Mike and Austin, but, but same thing with Mike, you know, um, I happened to come down at the end of the fourth quarter and then into overtime and watched from the sidelines and um, against the Raiders against the Raiders against the Raiders. Which, and it felt, I mean, it wasn't a playoff game, but it felt like a playoff game and it really had playoff implications. So um, both teams really, I mean, both teams were spent, um, but Mike in particular had a huge game. Um, he went out for a series in the second half, I think in the fourth quarter. And I'm thinking we need him back on the field. You know, I don't know if we can make this comeback without him. Um, and that's with having, you know, Keenan out there and having Austin out there. Um, Josh Palmer, who was a rookie last year, had made some big contributions for us. Um, but we needed Mike out there for some big plays and he, and he provided those. Um, but that's the mentality you have to have. I mean, I know this is a business and, and we all get paid for what we do, but you know, the effort and, and the passion and the love for the game is still a big part of this. And, and you, you have to have that to win in this league. And um, you know, Mike's not a big talker, um, but his, his, his game shows that. And he sure, certainly showed that, you know, multiple times in his career, but certainly out that last game and, and, you know, reason why we're trying, you try and resign your own when you can, you can't sign them all. Uh, but Mike was a guy that was a focal point to make sure we get back here. Do you think you've helped your defense enough? This obviously was a defense that, you know, when I think about your team last year, 
you go three and three down the stretch. And uh, in your three losses, you gave up 34 points or more. And, and you scored what I don't know, you scored in the high 20s or 30s uh, in every game you played down the stretch last year. Your offense really did enough, but your defense didn't. You only went three and three. Have you done enough with your defense now to be more competitive in a really competitive division? Well, you would hope, but you don't know until you put the pads on, get out there in August, and then we'll see in September. Right now, it's just, it's all on paper. And as you know, once you hit June 15th, nobody really cares what your offseason was like. So, um, but we knew this, you know, the transition was going to take time. It doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight in Indianapolis when Tony Dungy became the head coach. Um, it took a couple of years to get there. Uh, we knew there'd be a transition on defense. I love the scheme. I love how Brandon coaches it. I love how Ronaldo, Ronaldo Hill coaches it. Um, and we're starting to get some more players that really fit specifically what they're looking for. So um, I would like to think we're much closer this year than we were last year, uh, but the proof will be in September. You know, those first, those first four games, um, you know, we'll see exactly where we are in defense, but I'm, I'm optimistic of where we are um, with this group and we'll, we'll kind of see how it plays out. What's it like working with Brandon Staley? High energy, high energy. And, and he, you know, the one thing he really talks about a lot is relationships. Um, and that's all genuine and real. And it's relationships, you know, not just with the players, it's with the assistant coaches, it's with the scouts, it's with everybody in the front office, it's everybody in the building. Um, you know, you can talk about, you know, we know this is a business, um, but, you know, when you plan a team together, it, there is a family atmosphere. That's just natural, whether it's high school, college, or professional. Um, but you have to feel that. And with Brandon, you feel that every day. And um, he just has great people skills with the players. Um, he's bright. I mean, he's brilliant, um, but he listens. I mean, he listens to players, listens to, to our leadership council, uh, listens to his coaches. And it's a fun environment to work in. As you see last year, I mean, you can't say we're not, we're not an exciting team to watch play. I know, I know some people may think we probably go a little bit overboard, but that's our identity. That's how we like it. That's how we're going to play. And, uh, you know, you're, you're a reflection of your head coach. And, um, you know, it's exciting, but it's, it's great day-to-day -day working with Brandon. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. How did you feel deep down inside five minutes into the second half of the game against the, the Raiders? It's fourth and one at your own 18-yard line. And Brandon keeps the offense on the field and goes for it. Ends up not making it, but... How did you really feel about that play call? That's the way we had done it all year. So that's just, you know, you can't just say, well, it's, it's the last game of the year and it's really important. Maybe we should be more conservative. That's not who we are. And we had some opportunities during the year with the same situation. We went for it and got it and that winning the game. Um, there was another game that weekend. I think it was the Cardinals game. Same situation. I believe it was them that went for it. They got it. Nobody said a word. You know, yeah, we went yeah. for it, didn't get it. You know, it's, but, you know, my first thought is, hey, look, he not only trusts the offense, he trusts the defense that if we don't get this, we'll get a stop. And we did help, we held him to a field goal there. Field goal, yeah. So um, the but, other part of that, you know, I, I, and it, it's one of the points that I've made when I've discussed this is that uh, you went for it on fourth down seven times in that game, seven times. And you were six for seven. Yeah. 
and now, you've now just got to take those odds. Now that you know, we, we were behind, so we had to go for a couple of those times. But if you're going to make probability-based decisions, you can't just say, well, you know what, in this situation, we don't want to do it. You know, we felt, we felt, felt like we, the odds were with us, but it's never going to be 100%. Um, and that particular play, we didn't execute it as well as they executed it. And we didn't get it, but we held them the field goal and, and you move on. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, we have a quarterback that's very good. We have some skilled players that, that are excellent. Um, our offensive line really improved a lot last year. And then we added Zion Johnson in the draft. So we feel like, you know, if, if the probability is with us, you know, we're going to make those decisions and go for it. If we don't get it, we're going to play defense and try and stop them. I kind of like not only the fact that you pick Zion Johnson in the first round because he was, I think, uh, by popular acclaim, probably the best interior lineman in this draft. And not only that, but then you get a bigger back in Isaiah Spiller, who, uh, and again, look, I have no idea what uh, the personnel groupings would be. But maybe Isaiah Spiller, who is whatever he's going to be, 218, 220, maybe he's in the backfield when you have a fourth and one at your own 18. Nothing against Austin Eckler. But, you know, it just gives you another little piece and another little option to work with, probably. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what role he can earn this year. Um, but uh, adding Zion was, was important. If you would ask me in 2013 if I'd ever draft a guard in the first round, I would have said no way would we ever draft a guard in the first round. But you know, you adapt and change. And and why now? Then what what is what is it about the game now that made you do it particularly this year? Well, number one, you have to compare it to what else is available at that pick. But just with that position, you know, we have a, a, a big time quarterback, and if we can really solidify the inside of the pocket left guard, center, right guard, to really build a wall for him, have the tackles, run the rushers up the field, to give a nice big wide pocket that our quarterback can step up into. Um, that's key because we have some really good skill position players, but to facilitate that, we need time. So that was important there. And, and you know, hopefully we have the lead in the second half of some games. When you got to run the ball, when everyone knows you're going to run the ball, Austin Eckler is a big time running back. You know, so the better guys we have up front to help block in the run game we can run some clock and you know close out games so um it was you know the Corey Lindsley signing was huge that that center spot in the offensive line is so important for us he's the quarterback just like just like Justin is but then I had two guards Matt Filer last year in free agency and then Zion this year now Zion's going to have to come in and his transition is still going to be a transition for him just to come into that spot what Rashawn Slater did last year is really not common. He stepped in from day one, and it was like he played in the league for four or five years. Don't see that very often. Um, we saw it with Derwin James, but you just don't see that very often. Zion, there'll be a little bit of a transition, but we think he's really talented, um, strong, powerful. He can anchor in that middle, but still athletic enough to move, both run and pass. Um, and it's just critical to have, the, to have those guys up front to let everybody else do their jobs. Um, you see him play. You see him playing right guard, Tom. More, yeah, more than likely to be right guard. Yeah, and um, you know, like I said, I probably wasn't as focused on that when I first started in this in this business. Um, just the way our lines were built in Indianapolis, we didn't put a lot of resources into the, to the two guard spots. We always had Jeff Saturday, who was an All Pro. Um, you know, we were focused on tackles, not so much guards. But you know, they're all important. All those guys up front are important. So. Um, so he was a he was a target for us. We we're lucky to have him.
I want to ask you two general manager questions right now of things that happened this year that really have interested me about your job. The first is, I thought one of the most interesting things that happened in this draft was a trade that was made between Minnesota and Detroit. A big trade moving up from 32 to 12, which the Lions did to take Jamison Williams and the uh, Vikings went back. They got a really good safety in Lewis scene. And then they got one more pick in the top 65 than they would have had. And I think that is the reason why uh, Quasi Adolfo Menza made this deal. He liked the depth up high a little bit more than he liked the player at whoever the player would have been at 12. But I'm just curious, is there an unwritten rule in the Tom Telesco book about trading with general managers and teams in your own division? Is that kind of verboten or not really? I would have a hard time, especially in the first round, I would have a hard time trading with the team in our division. Um, I don't want to, because I would feel like I'm half helping them, half yeah. helping me, but half helping them. I, I would have a hard time with that. I know for this year, I was looking at different possibilities of possibly trading down. And the Chiefs had two picks, you know, at the bottom of the round. I'm like, there's no, I can't trade with the Chiefs. I can't, I, wouldn't, I just, I don't know. If, I don't think I could do that to help them come up and get a player they like. So yeah, so there is a rule for me. Um, I'm not saying that's the right way to do it. Maybe I need to, to uh, reevaluate that, but I'd have a hard time trading with an in-division team that high in the draft. It was something later on. I probably wouldn't, wouldn't bother me as much. Um, but, uh, and then I certainly wouldn't want to make a player for player trade with the team in my division. I just don't think I would trust them. And they're all great people, you know, and they're really good at what they right. do. But in the end, it's a business. So, yeah. Uh, and in the end, I thought that Minnesota trade, I thought when that first happened, I was surprised at the compensation after the draft. I looked at it and I said, I, I like this for both teams. I thought it was a really good trade. Um, yeah. And the biggest thing you got to work, you know, with the trade is who are you going to get? You know, what type of player you're going to get? And the player that the Vikings got is an excellent safety. I mean, you know, we, we, we love them. He's a great player. So, um, but yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. It, I just, I was totally fascinated by it. And I talked to Brad Holmes, the GM of Detroit, and he said, look, I, if I think I'm going to improve our team, I'll trade with anybody. Um, and I'm, I have not talked to Quasi uh, Adolfo Mensa about it. Uh, this is his first year running a draft with, with Minnesota, but I, I just, it was a totally fascinating, just different deal. And yeah. here's the other GM type thing I wanted to ask. So this year seemed to me to be a really different draft in that, uh, and maybe it's just an outlier, one quarterback picked in the top 70, zero running backs picked in the top 35. So in the top 35 picks in this draft, there was one quarterback and zero running backs. I mean, if you go back 15, 20, 30 years, that would be the craziest thing of all. I mean, first of all, the running backs. I mean, everybody, you know, until very recently, running backs were very commonly picked in the first round. Tell me if things are changing in terms of value of certain positions now, or do you think maybe this year is just an outlier? Well, I know one year is not a trend, but um, 
there are certainly positional values um, that you have to look at. And just like I mentioned with the guards earlier, I mean, I mean, typically taking a guard in the first round, is that a really high price guy at the end of his contract? You know, not necessarily, you know, you may want to, you know, an edge rusher, a quarterback, maybe a receiver that, that, you know, um, you're going to have for five years, um, you know, get a salary cap benefit from that. Um, but there's definitely positional values you look at just based on what they're going to make. I mean, we all have the same salary cap and it's a hard cap. So you have to project out, you know, what they're going to be at the end of their contract. So um, they're certainly involved in that now. Now, as far as the quarterback position this year, I mean, I just think that was just a one-year anomaly. Um, it yeah. just happens. I mean, um, it's been so strong over the last couple of years. Maybe this is just a corrector a little bit. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with running backs. Um, I just thought it was a very deep running back class. I mean, there was a couple, couple of guys up high, but there was a big group of backs that were pretty much ability-wise very similar. So if you feel like, you know, you can get a, a comparable player a little bit later on, you can take a different position. Uh, that maybe, you know, say like a defensive lineman, there aren't very many defensive, big defensive linemen in the draft each year. Um, there aren't a lot of talented offensive linemen. So you maybe drop one of those guys earlier and you get a running back later just because there's more running backs. There's more running backs in college. As you see now, there's so many receivers coming out of college. So that pool is just bigger um, than, say, O-line, D-line. So there is definitely positional value in the draft. And a lot of this, you know, even though, you know, the salary cap is, you know, you don't really think about salary cap in terms of the draft, but it does, it is in, in your thinking uh, when you're drafting these players, certainly in the first round um, as far as positional value. I'll end with this. Did you, um, when you look at your division right now, adding Russell Wilson, and obviously there have been other changes, but you look at your division and I wonder if it impacted at all how you did business this offseason or how you wanted to do business this offseason. Not really, because, you know, we probably a couple of weeks after the season ended, when we start to really discuss what our what our you know, what our plan is for this year, our strategy. Um, you know, by the time those deals were done, I don't think it really impacted us. Um, you can't help but notice, you know, when you know, Russell Wilson goes to the Broncos and, you know, the Chiefs are the Chiefs and they're getting better, obviously. I mean, they don't have to get better. They're already the best team in the, in the division. But you see everything the Raiders are doing. You can't help but notice it. Um, but uh, it really didn't change, you know, what our plan was this offseason. We, we saw how we played in 17 games last year. We knew what we had to do on both sides of the ball to get better and on special teams. Um, so, yeah, it did not impact it, um, but you can't help to watch what's going on and this it's uh it just seemed like every player that was you know comes available ends up in our division at some point got <laughs> a spot you know because it was like one after another i mean the, the Devonte adams one i was i was off doing i think i was doing an interview somewhere when it broke and i said you got to be kidding me like there's just you know didn't see that one coming so um but i'll tell you what the teams that come on our division this year they're going to be battle tested because our game yeah. with the raiders um, with Kansas City, with Denver, they're going to be like playoff games. I mean, our division games, I mean, they count really count two in the standings um, for each game. So I remember, hey, Tom, I remember uh, I covered the New York Giants for Newsday for four years in the 80s. And and that was at a time when uh, when the Giants got to the Super Bowl a couple of times and they were in the playoffs. Washington won three Super Bowls. 
in that period of time. And, and Dallas was, you know, late in the eighties getting better, but, you know, they had been good for a long time before that. But I remember one day asking Bill Parcells, why have so many teams from the NFC East made charges in January? Why, why, why have there been so many teams in the NFC East that have gone on to be very good in the playoffs that year? And he, he used the word you just used before. And he said, because we're battle tested, we are not, we play six games in our division and I don't care who we play, the Bears, the Niners, whoever, I don't care who we play. We, they are not going to be any tougher and any better than the teams we play in our division. So whoever comes out of our division has got a real good chance to go very far in the playoffs. I think it's exactly right what you're saying. By the time you get, if, if you make the playoffs, you will have already played four or five, maybe even six division playoff type games this year you know and like you know there's the old saying high water raises all boats and that's really what it is i mean the draft ends the next day you know hey kyle van oy could help us he can really help us in a role um i mean look at our division like look what we have to compete against you know week after week after week so you know that was something that we went after and you know we think he's gonna be a great addition but it just never ends um, even between now, when we break for vacation, even through vacation, you're constantly looking to add the best. If you don't have it going into training camp, more than likely you won't have it coming out. You, know, you may be able to, you know, maybe a couple of waiver claims at the cut to 53 to help out some depth, but you really need that depth going into training camp. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who's going to get hurt. You don't know what player may not perform the way you thought he's going to perform. So try and build the strongest team you can going into camp. Maybe you can add a couple as you, as you break camp around Labor Day and then let it ride after that. And just, but even during the season, you're constantly looking to try and, you know, bolster your team, you know, give your coaches the best possible resources they have and uh, just never ends. One of Kyle Van Noy's years in New England, I think it was 2019, um, his last year there before he went to Miami and then went back to New England. I remember I voted for him on my all pro team, my first team, all pro team. And I, I didn't have, I couldn't back it statistically. He might've had seven sacks or something like that. But my whole point was every time I watch the Patriots, he's in the middle of five huge plays in the game. And that's what I think of when I think of Kyle Van Noy. he might not at the end of the year, let's say he plays, I have no idea what to play 25 snaps a game. I, I have no idea what to play, but I will guarantee you that he will have made at the end of this year, six, seven, eight, nine plays where you said we won the game in large part due to one of these plays that Kyle Van Noy made. Now here's, he here's, just, here's he's, simple, just, he's such an instinctive player. Here's simple scouting. So, who do you like? Who do you not like playing against? Well, I don't like playing against Mahomes and Tyree Kill because they're they're big time players. Well, Kyle Van Noy is one of those players. Like I don't like playing against Kyle Van Noy because he's so smart and instinctive. He can do so many different things on the defense. Um, so that's I mean that's number one in scouting. Who's hard to play against? Kyle Van Noy is very hard to play against. He was in New England. He was in Miami the year that he was there because um, we played them the year at Miami when he was there. Um, there's a lot of things well. He plays a position the way you, you the way it's taught. Um, 
So to add a guy like that, add him to the mix, add him on defense, um, that, that was big for us. Hey, Tom Telesco, thanks so much for taking all this time and uh, reviewing your offseason. I think you guys are, you've done so much to get better. You already were a borderline playoff team, but, and I don't want to jinx you. I'll be very surprised if you're not playing deep into January this year, but thank you so much for taking the time and best of luck this year. Anytime. We'll see you on your camp tour when you come through in August. All right. I will. Thanks a lot, Tom. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I'm here with Howard Katz and Mike North of the NFL scheduling team. And, you know, guys, ever since I was in your offices in uh, the NFL headquarters and did something with you, I think in 2015, the complexity seems to grow almost every year. And I wonder if this year there were any wrenches in the works, anything that was different, anything that made this process take any longer or made it more difficult than it really was? Um, Peter, it gets more complex every year. It gets more challenging every year. Um, the Amazon partnership has resulted in 15 Amazon Thursday night games. Um, we've added, uh, we have a triple header on Christmas this day, this year. Um, we have a bunch of simulcasts, uh, of ESPN, ABC games. We have, uh, a, a week two on ABC, ESPN, their Monday night game on each of those networks. So we have more national windows than we've ever had before this year. And that just makes the whole process more complex, trying to thread the needle and make sure we get all the national windows, right. Uh, that we have big games for those simulcasts that I just referenced. Uh, we're ABC simulcasting the ESPN game. And um, the challenge then is to make sure we've got enough really good games in the one o'clock windows on Sunday afternoons. I think we've got all the national games right. We always really worry about the one o'clock on, on CBS and Fox on Sunday afternoon. And this season was really exacerbated by really unprecedented player movement while we were in the middle of the process. You know, Howard's 100% right. This 
this project never gets any easier. The computers are going a thousand miles an hour in a million different directions. Uh, and then all of a sudden Tom Brady retires. Okay, stop everything, rethink, redeploy, reassess, reevaluate. Well, Tom unretired. Okay, stop everything, redeploy, re reassess. Russell Wilson changes teams, Tyreek Hill changes teams, Matt Ryan changes teams. It really felt like an unprecedented uh, off season of player movement big player, star player movement. And every one of those kind of requires us all to stop and take a breath and kind of look at each other and say, all right, that which we thought was worthy of prime time, is it still? And that which maybe we had slated for one o'clock on Sunday might now have graduated to a 425 window or an 830 window or a Monday night or a Thursday night window. And those movements may not even be done yet, but obviously at some point we had to put a schedule out. Can you tell me, especially about Brady, what happened the day he said he was coming back? It was good news for us, Peter. <laughs> Honestly, Tampa Bay has a great schedule. There were a lot of, there were just a lot of great Tampa Bay games um, that with Tom Brady are real, all real special. Without Tom Brady, maybe not quite as special. So while Mike's right, we had to stop everything and restart. It was great news for us because we knew the outcome ultimately would be better. So it was a lot of work, but we got to a better place. I wonder too, that you had so many games on that Brady schedule that could have been mega games with Brady. They still would have been interesting without Brady, but they would not have been mega games. So that had to have helped you, especially in a lot of your national windows. Yeah, same thing with Russell Wilson going to Denver. You know, any Broncos game in the division, especially for these past 10 or 20 years, sounds like a football game, but they all kind of ratcheted up in terms of fan interest and our willingness to put them into national windows. So like Howard said, the problem never gets any easier, but having Brady come back, having Russell Wilson move to the Broncos definitely gave us more tools in the toolbox to play with and more assets to deploy across our, all of our partners. I thought that the, the Thursday night schedule, which is gonna be really an interesting kind of leap of faith, big step for the NFL in streaming games. And I don't think anybody can predict exactly what the ratings will be or what exactly will happen. But when I looked at this schedule as a whole, the Thursday night games, I said, my first reaction was, this is better than an ESPN Monday night schedule five years ago. Now, maybe there are just better games because Brady came back and Russell Wilson's in Denver and there's all these other really fun teams, the Chargers and the Raiders and all that. But how are you able to give, other than maybe a couple of clunkers late in the, in the schedule, how are you able to give the Thursday night package, such a good schedule of games. Mike, you could take this one. Sure, I'll take this one. I, I think the honest answer, Peter, is I think if you go back and look over the last couple of years when Thursday night football was on, you know, one of the three-letter networks, I think this year's schedule compares really favorably 
Uh, I think it's pretty consistent with where we've been on Thursday night. You know that we've got a rule in the league where, you know, we've got to limit the number of times each team can play a short week Thursday. So the vast majority of the teams in the league, we're going to end up on the Thursday night football package somewhere. So, you know, your words, not mine. I'm not sure we'd call them clunkers, but, you know, there's going to be, you know, if you've got some A versus A's, then you might have to take some B's versus B's with it, as opposed to maybe straight A minuses and B pluses. So uh, what we really tried to do and, and credit to, you know, Howard and Hans Schroeder and Brian Rollout and of course the commissioner really kind of set a target for ourselves that you know if we want to make this successful uh as we migrate to a streaming service for the first time you know we're all probably prime consumers we're going to be able to find it certainly if we can our kids will help us uh i'm not sure my mother's going to find it but um <laughs> might have to help her but the way to do that is to make sure we put really good games there so maybe you know i think we were always kind of targeting what we call tent poles uh, games where you can point to where every couple of weeks, if not every single week of the year, there's a game that just feels big, sounds like a football game. And look, any game without Michael's calling it is going to sound like a football game. So um, you can see this schedule for Amazon has some real tent poles on it. We announced that uh, Chiefs Chargers game uh, during the draft. They play great games against each other. They have these past couple of years, usually in prime time, often on Thursdays, but usually in December. This one we're going to do nice and early, kind of get them off to a great start. You've got a Baltimore-Tampa Bay game in there, a Tennessee-Green Bay game in there, Buffalo and New England coming back on full weeks of rest because they're both going to play on Thanksgiving night. And then we save Dallas for the last week of the year, and, and you see a Titans-Cowboys game there down in week 17 where hopefully it's going to have a lot of playoff implications, maybe even a Super Bowl preview. I think we're going to give fans reason to go find Amazon this year and find these football games. And hopefully after maybe the first couple of weeks, it'll just become another button on our remote. Everybody will find it and everybody will know this is where we go for football on Thursdays. Uh, but putting some big games there, hopefully is going to help with that transition. Howard, how close did you come to playing a, a Black Friday game? Um, it was discussed, Peter. It was um, a possibility. Ultimately, um, the league, in consultation with Amazon, decided not to go forward with it this year. Um, there, were, there were pros and cons about it. Um, it was uh, an additional scheduling complexity because for some time, until it was a final determination that we weren't going to do it this year, we had to contemplate it. So when the decision was ultimately made that we weren't going to do the Black Friday game this year, it eased our burden a little bit. Did you basically feel like because of the World Cup game and because you couldn't put the game on in prime time, that sort of wedging it between the end of the World Cup game and the beginning of prime time? was going to be problematic? That was a factor, Peter. Look, as you well know, there is a federal law uh, with respect to televising NFL games um, on Fridays or Saturdays, uh, Friday, starting at Friday at six o'clock through Saturday night um, from the Labor Day until after the second Saturday of December. So- yeah. There was going to be, so we couldn't play that game at night. We had to play that game during the day. The World Cup was a factor, but there were a lot of other factors as well. I mean, the whole Amazon thing is unknown right now. We don't know what to expect. We don't know what kind of audiences we're going to get. 
we don't, there, there's so many unknown factors. It just seems smart to kind of wait a year and, and get a year under our yeah. belt so we could evaluate all those things. So the World Cup was a factor, but it wasn't the factor. What's interesting about that, I thought it was 7 p.m. I didn't know it was 6. So you would have had to almost certainly, unless you played at 11 in the morning, <laughs> you know, you would have had to play this game, start this game in the second half of one of the biggest sports events of the year, the U.S.-England World Cup game. So I don't know. It, it, it seems smart to delay this until 2023 to me. Um, let me ask you one other thing about Thanksgiving weekend that I found interesting. So not that New England at Minnesota came totally out of the blue, but I thought about that game a lot. And I said, I don't really know how either one of these teams is going to be in the past. A lot of times for your night game on Thanksgiving, you've had a premier team that, you know, you thought, well, the saints or, or, or you know, or somebody would be in there that is a real Super Bowl contender. And who knows, these guys could be too. But it strikes me that this New England-Minnesota game is gonna be really important to both teams at this stage of the season. How'd you arrive at New England-Minnesota for your, I don't wanna use a tent pole thing, but for your big game on Thanksgiving? Well, I'll let Mike embellish, but I will tell you that um, there are, they, these are two teams that we think are going to be in the mix to the end, right? We, we really think Minnesota's a really solid football team, and New England has been a dominant team. Uh, they are a great brand. Um, so part of this is giving us the opportunity to bring New England back against Buffalo the following Thursday night. So that was a factor. But we really like the game because we think it's two teams that are going to be playing for a lot uh, from Thanksgiving on to the end of the season. But Mike, you, you can your take on it. Yeah, look, mathematically speaking, Thanksgiving is uh, one of the hardest constraints we have to work around every year. We mentioned that, you know, all teams in the league are probably going to end up are going to play one short week Thursday at some point. Um, and this year with the expansion of the Amazon package moving into a 15 game package now, there's going to be two teams in the league, they're going to play a second short week Thursday so those six teams that are playing on Thanksgiving are almost kind of the fulcrum for the whole schedule for us because that's going to be some of their only short week Thursday, others like Howard said we want to be able to bring back the following week. We've done it with Dallas quite a bit in recent years where Dallas plays on Thanksgiving, comes back the following Thursday against another team that plays on Thanksgiving. And like Howard said, you know, knowing you could put New England and Minnesota in as the Thursday night game on week 12, you could kind of go a lot of different ways with that one. If we did end up going with Buffalo Detroit for CBS that day, you could bring Buffalo and New England back to play each other the following Thursday. If we wanted to, we could have brought Dallas and Minnesota back the following Thursday. So it gave us a lot of different options as we were trying to accommodate what's a really challenging piece of the puzzle for us, those six teams playing on Thanksgiving, knowing two of them were going to come back the following week and two teams somewhere in the schedule were going to end up playing a second short week. What was interesting, I, I, I've, all, I've come to expect that Dallas would play consecutive Thursday games, you know, one on Thanksgiving and one the next week. And when I saw this one, I had to go back and look and I said, oh, okay. They did take two Thanksgiving 
opponent, uh, two Thanksgiving teams, Buffalo and New England, and they put them the next week in a, that'll be a mega game for, for Amazon Prime. That really has the feel of a very, very big game. What were your thoughts about, uh, about doing that and having uh, Buffalo and New England be the two teams to come back? like the flexibility. I mean, the truth is we couldn't have gone wrong. You could have put Buffalo, New England there. You could have put Dallas, Minnesota there. Um, if you didn't put Buffalo, New England right there immediately after Thanksgiving, you could have gone down and put them in week 17 and had those two teams be the two teams that play a second short week Thursday. The problem that we had with that and what we were wrestling with was, you know, Buffalo and New England were going to end up being road teams for Thanksgiving. So one of their short weeks was going to be on the road. If they were going to play each other again down there in week 17 for a second short week Thursday, obviously they couldn't both be home. So one of those teams was going to end up with two short week Thursday road games. And for yeah. the first time we're doing this, didn't feel right to put that burden on somebody and have them have two short weeks and both of them be on the road. So having the flexibility to be able to come back with Buff New England right after Thanksgiving on a full week's rest gave us the luxury of being able to go down there in the week 17, having Dallas and Tennessee play each other, play that game in Tennessee. And that way you knew if Tennessee was going to end up with two short weeks, at least one of them was going to be at home. Two questions about the Immaculate Reception rematch. <clears throat> when I think of you guys sitting in that room and putting the schedule together, I don't know why, but I thought that was that had to be one of the first games that you put inserted in a spot and said we don't want this game to move and to for for those who have not seen the schedule or don't know what i'm talking about 50 years ago this year oakland and pittsburgh played in a playoff game on december 23 1972 it turned out to be one of the great games in the history of the NFL with probably the most dramatic finish in the history of the NFL. The Franco Harris ricocheted touchdown catch in which he takes it in and the Steelers win as time expires. So this year, fortunately for the NFL, uh, it, although, you know, who knows uh, how these things work out, the Raiders and the Chargers played a game in week 18 of last year that the Raiders ended up winning, which meant that they were gonna go on the road to Pittsburgh in 2022. And so my, my question is, knowing that you guys very many times like the history and the historical implications of, of things, how much did that play into it? And how soon did you have that uh, as a part of your schedule for December 24. Peter, you're spot on. I mean, it was one of the first uh, games that we locked into a spot. We did it very early in the process. We wanted that game in a national window. We wanted it to be as close to the actual date as possible. Thursday night really wasn't an option because we don't travel teams three time zones to play a short week Thursday game. Um, Saturday became the perfect spot for it. Um, and we, we locked that in pretty early in the process, but it was the fact that we're actually playing the Raiders and the Steelers 
2022 on the 50th anniversary is just remarkable how it took place because it it wasn't a done deal till the very last play of the <laughs> 272nd game of the 2021 season. And I texted Howard as soon as that game ended. On the one hand, obviously, we still had to go set a wild card schedule and a whole postseason schedule. And of course, our focus was still on 2021. Uh, but I texted Howard right as that game ended and I said that field goal has now indeed given us Raiders Steelers for next year. And to your point, it was one of the very first things Howard had in mind for this year. I think he even called the Steelers and made sure they were comfortable with the Christmas holiday because it's almost, I think, to the day, maybe one day off, it's almost one day exact off. 50th anniversary. You know what I wondered? You know what I wondered about this? Howard, did you ever give any thought or did Roger and you ever discuss the possibility of playing this game on Friday, the 23rd, as a standalone game? at a time of year where the game probably would have done a gigantic number. Did you ever give it any thought to play it on exactly the 50 year anniversary of the game? Peter, we really couldn't because of the short week rule. I mean, Friday still would have been a short week for the Raiders. So we would not have been able to have them cross three time zones to play on Friday. Yeah. Uh, I really, I just, I love that game. I love the opportunity of it. I hope uh, that for, you know, one day of his life that Terry Bradshaw can wipe the slate clean. And I'd love to see Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris and Frenchie Fuqua on the field before the game waving to the crowd or, or whatever. But that's, that's just one of the great pieces of history NFL history and to have this game I mean I don't want to get corny it's kind of a gift that you're able to have this game this year there's a couple others too actually we got fortunate there's a uh it's also the 50th anniversary of the Miami Dolphins perfect season and they were playing Pittsburgh that one wasn't standings based so we knew we had that one in our hands that's a rematch of the AFC championship game from that season yeah and so we talked to the Dolphins ahead of time uh, we're looking to schedule them with a home primetime game kind of first half of the season where they could invite Zonka and everybody else back and kind of celebrate that. And maybe a little lesser known, it is also the 75th anniversary of the Cardinals championship where they beat the Eagles in the final game. And it was the first uh, championship for a female owner in the league. Um, the Cardinals were owned uh, by a woman at that time, they won a championship 75 years ago and beat the Eagles. And we've got an Eagles at Cardinals game again this year. So we'll yeah. certainly be celebrating all of those this year. Michael, Michael Bidwell's grandmother. Mm-hmm. Wow. I had no, I had no idea. No idea. Um, Howard, I want to, I want to start, I want to go right to the top of the schedule and ask you, I've had my pet theory on this for a while, but Buffalo at the Rams, I, it, it seemed to me that in prior years, you have not necessarily used the greatest game on a team schedule. Not to say this is the greatest game on the Rams schedule, but it certainly is a candidate for one. Uh, that, that many times you have saved that for, you know, say a doubleheader in sweeps month or, or whatever, later in the year for a little bit more drama in prime time or whatever. But it struck me that because the rating last year of Dallas Tampa in the first game of the season was so huge that 
you would want to try to compete with that rating to some degree because you don't want to start off on a down note with the ratings for the first game of the year down 12 or 15 percent compared to last year. What went into the Buffalo uh, opposition to the Rams in the first game of the season? Well, that was part of it. We wanted to get off to a great start. We wanted a game that was going to um, compare, be comparable in terms of audience uh, to what we did last year. But we had a lot of uh, options this year. I mean, very often you look at a team's schedule and there are eight or in some cases nine home games. You look and say, okay, here's the game. This is the one that jumps out. If you look at the Rams schedule, look at the options that we had. We had Dallas, we had Buffalo, Denver, uh, let's see, San Francisco. I mean, I'm probably missing one. Um, I just, I think we had a lot of options. Yeah. And, and Buffalo, and, and we used all those options. We probably, we probably went down at some point in the scheduling process four different paths, one with each one of those four teams that I, that I just mentioned. And we kind of found our best path down the, the Buffalo Rams kickoff, but um, we had other options that we, we would have been very happy with. Denver, San Francisco, Dallas were all good con contenders for that spot. Um. This there's two other quick things I wanted to ask you both about the, the game. The one game that really stuck out, which is almost always a Thursday in mid to late September is Thursday of week 16 Jacksonville at the Jets just seemed like a really odd time because look, you guys, there's no hiding this. These teams could both be lost at sea by week 16. Why put that game week 16? Uh, look, the truth is uh, none of us know anything. Uh, we think the Jets got better in the draft. You've got, you know, the last two number one overall quarterback draft picks, or if not number one overall, certainly early draft picks. Um, look, this kind of goes to what we were saying before when we were talking about the Amazon schedule. You could have broken up. Jacksonville and the Jets and you could have had say Jacksonville play Tennessee and the Jets play Green Bay would have been fine but then what you're missing is that Tennessee Green Bay Thursday night game so um, trying to strike the right balance between some really big tent poles and you know other games that have storylines uh, sure hoping Jacksonville and the Jets has playoff implications when we get to it in December um, you know, we looked at schedules where those two didn't even play each other on Thursday. We looked at schedules where they played each other on the Thursday package a little earlier in the season. Uh, this just happened to be where it fell on this one. Um, nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to be ashamed of. Hopefully there's still playoff implications there. There's still storylines. But again, kind of like the way, you know, there's uh, good games on the Thursday package, if not every single week, certainly every other week. So if unfortunately Jacksonville Jets isn't quite as good as we hope, you know, we can use that opportunity to talk about the quarterbacks they're building for the future, but also start promoting into the Amazon game the following week, which is that Cowboys Titans game. So um, none of us know anything. We'll see what happens when we get there. We can talk to you again then and see what happens. Hopefully, uh, you know, maybe somebody's hanging around for a wild card spot when we get there. Howard, Christmas Day fascinated me because 
There are three games on Christmas Day that any one of them could be an absolute monster game. And it strikes me that the NFL has said, we're not seeding Christmas Day anymore to, to the NBA, even though Christmas Day this year is on a Sunday. So it's naturally your day to play. Can you just tell me what went into the three games, Green Bay, Miami early, Denver, Los Angeles late, and then at night, Tampa Bay and Arizona? Uh, what went into it? We had a lot of different options for those Christmas games. And um, I mean, the first thing that went into it was making a decision that we, in fact, were going to play a triple header on that Sunday. I mean, we Sunday is an NFL day. Uh, we're playing our normal Saturday, our normal Sunday afternoon slate on Saturday. But CBS and Fox each reach out to us about wanting to play a Christmas afternoon game. We were already scheduled to play a Sunday night game. And it just made all the sense in the world. The specific games moved around a lot throughout the scheduling process, Peter. We didn't yeah. start off just saying these are the games. We had a, a pool of games um, and it moved around quite a bit. We, we settled on a place where we felt very, very comfortable that there were gonna be solid games in late season national windows. Um, but we saw dozens of games in those windows during the process. Um, Howard, one final thing for you. You've done this for a long time. When you look- that, You're at, telling me I'm old? Yeah, you're old. So am I, but uh, you've done this for a long time. When you finish this schedule, deep down, what'd you think in your heart of hearts? That it was one of the best schedules that we've, we've done. That it was an incredibly challenging year with all the new complexities. And I was so proud of the team that I work with uh, that we were able to pull this together. I mean, this is a schedule that's got, we think terrific television uh, for each of our network partners, week in and week out. There's a minimal amount of pain. No schedule is ever perfect. We all know that, but the warts on this schedule are minimal. There's four three game road trips, but none of them uh, are really egregious travel for anybody. Uh, there are no buys until week six. There's so much good in this schedule that when we finished it, I felt really proud of the team and of our effort because uh, it doesn't get any easier each year. Listen, thanks a lot for joining me, guys. Really, really appreciate your time. Thanks, Peter. Pleasure. Take care. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing 
inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. My thanks to Mike North, Howard Katz, Tom Telesco for those revealing chats. And as always, my thanks to Paul Burmeister uh, for his partnership on this podcast. We'll be back next week with one more podcast before I go on hiatus for the summer and then come back the last week of July uh, with a new series of podcasts from the training camp road. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching, everybody. And we'll see you next week with a new The Peter King Podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are.